Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the price of gasoline. Is it affecting you? We have breaking news about an old bust. We present another commentary from our chief aging officer, We explore the history of knock-knock jokes. We praise the wisdom of Swiss laws governing guinea pig ownership. And we talk about listening. The Old Dog's conversation is with Lynette Ross, a pastor who has taken a winding but sure-footed path to the ministry. Stay with us. Say, Paul. Uh Uh-huh. Are you ready to ramble? Oh, indeed, I am. We've got a hot topic today. Mm. The price of gas. Now, if anybody out there has filled up their tank recently, they have experienced a minor heart attack. Yes, indeed. And uh, so I'm wondering, has the price of gas changed your life at all? Well, you're right. I mean, it is a shock. But um, has it changed my habits? No. Because, frankly, I don't drive that much. And the only difference it might make is on a long trip, a driving trip, we'd have to budget a little bit better, I suppose. Well, I'll tell you, though, I think for for the average commuter in this country, they probably go through a a tank a week. Yeah. I would guess. I I go through maybe half a tank a week because my car is the primary driving car. Yes, it hurts, but you know what? Uh, I've been through this before. Doesn't it feel familiar? Well, it does, but of course, we've never had prices this high. No. People have always predicted, you know, you're going to see $5 a gallon, uh, but we never got there before. Well, if you figure in inflation, we probably haven't gotten there before. And you're right. I mean, way back to the uh, gas wars in the 70s when um, there, there wasn't gas. You know, you'd pay anything for it, remember? Yeah. But you couldn't get it. Or toilet paper, for that matter. <laughs> remember <laughs> you, the first yes, first yes. year of COVID? So I guess in summation, um, our situations, I think, are similar. It hasn't changed our life one bit. It gives us something to complain about uh, over dinner. There's Uh-oh. one other aspect of this, and um, I think that it has to do with the supply chain uh, to a great extent. A lot of... People, especially smaller contractors, spend an enormous amount of money on fuel just getting around town. From this job to that job, they're constantly moving around town. This has, I think, forced a few people out of business. Uh, that we can complain, you know, it's costing us more money, but we can manage it. But man, if you're spending hundreds of dollars on fuel every week, uh, that's going to put a lot of people out of business. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no money left over for no dose, <laughs> <laughs> much less food or coffee or anything else. No, I and that will have an effect on the economy because we won't be able to hire people to get the work done that we need done. Yeah. So well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to quit mowing my lawn. Yeah. Uh, uh, although I don't have a lawn, uh, but, but still, it's the gesture. Paul, do you actually have a lawn mower? Uh, no. No. Okay. No, That's but empty, th- th- empty gesture. That doesn't mean I can't quit using it. <laughs>
A Texas woman found a 2,000-year-old Roman bust in a Goodwill for $34.99. Hey, such a deal! Mm. Until she found out it was looted from a museum. This pod nugget is from the Houston Chronicle for May 4th, 2022. In 2018, Laura Young, an antique dealer, found the white marble sculpture at a Goodwill in Austin listed for $34.99. The 50-pound bust seemed like a good deal, so she bought it and took it home. She contacted an auction house to find out more information about this hunk of marble, and she was told that it was a 2,000-year-old bust of a Roman general. Its last known location was a museum in the German city of Aschaffenburg. It had probably been looted from the museum near the end of World War II by a soldier from Texas. Oh, undoubtedly. Ah, We can only guess the thief or his descendants got tired of dusting the sculpture and donated it. So her goodwill find was stolen goods. She couldn't sell it or keep it. Her only option was to return it to the rightful owners. She hired a lawyer who was an expert in international law to negotiate its return to Germany. The process was slowed by COVID, but German authorities will finally take possession of the bust next summer. Meanwhile, Ms. Young's bargain bust turned into an expensive lesson in doing the right thing. And good for her, Paul. Yeah. Kathleen O'Brien is our chief aging officer. She's also the author of Grow Old, Be Happy. In this installment, Kathleen talks about the fantastic promises we were made about what the future would look like and the reality. We're never going to Mars. No, I don't mean that someday astronauts won't go to Mars. I mean, you and I are never going there. This occurred to me the other day when I started thinking about all the stuff grown-ups used to tell us about what life would be like in the 21st century. They said that our generation would probably fly in spaceships to distant planets. That's before they realized that Pluto, our most distant planet, wasn't really a planet. Things can turn on a dime, can't they? So cross Mars off your bucket list. Because despite what William Shatner did, neither he nor you will be taking that year-long journey to visit the dusty red place. Then there were the flying cars. Remember the Jetsons, the futuristic cartoon family on TV that had flying cars in their garage? They zoomed off to work or the grocery store in cars that lifted off the ground with a flick of a finger. How often, hopelessly deadlocked in traffic, have I wished for a flying car? But have they materialized? Do you know anyone who has one? Cross them off your list, too. How about robots that would live with us at home and be at our beck and call? I pictured them deftly navigating our living rooms with trays of champagne and caviar on those little toast points. They would also do laundry and make our lives a living paradise. But the only robots I've ever heard about are the giant ones that work in factories. And the only time I come across them is when I have to prove I'm not one so I can sign up for something online I'm not sure I want anyway. Somebody once told me that in the future, people would only work about three hours a day because machines would do everything for us. The downside is that we would all gain weight just sitting around. At least that part is true. Yes, the 21st century isn't quite what I envisioned. It hasn't always been a walk in the park. 
And that's exactly why we need those flying cars. Knock, knock. Who's there? A pod. A pod who? A pod nugget about the history of knock, knock jokes. This is from the NPR History Department. Well, I don't know about you, but I have fond memories of knock-knock jokes from the 50s. They were short and easy to remember, perfect for an elementary school performer such as myself. The art form actually goes back over 100 years. Around 1900, there were do-you-know jokes. Hmm. Here's an example. A jokester says, do you know Arthur? And the victim says, Arthur who? And the jokester replies, Arthur-mometer. <laughs> the joke format morphed into knock-knock jokes, and by the mid-30s, they were all the rage. Businesses staged knock-knock contests. Swing orchestras would work the jokes into popular songs. The Edgemont Cash and Carry Grocery in Chester, Pennsylvania, ran a display ad in their local paper. Knock-knock. Who's there? Don. Don who? Don, forget to do your shopping at the cash and carry. All right, let's admit it. This is not high art, but it's perfect trainer comedy for kids. And you got to start somewhere. You don't want kids breaking in with relationship material. So knock, knock. Who's there? Andy. Andy who? Andy, this pod nugget is over. Oh. Switzerland, the country known for its commitment to neutrality, has taken a bold stand on the social life of guinea pigs. This pod nugget is from the interestingfacts.com website. Because guinea pigs are social animals who grow lonesome without a friend, the Swiss have made it illegal to own just one. The Hmm. law was passed in 2008 as part of an effort to grant social rights to pets. Now, should a responsible owner lose half of a pair of guinea pigs to the great beyond, there is a way to avoid legal problems. There are rent-a-pig services to provide a temporary companion to the survivor. Oh, and there are other pets that have special legal protection in Switzerland. Goldfish also may not be kept alone as pets. Cats must have access to a window so they can see their fellow felines catting around. And for a time, dog owners were required to take a training course with their pooch, although this law was repealed in 2016. Apparently, it was too stressful for the dogs. So, if you are taking a trip to Switzerland and plan to take along your pet guinea pig or goldfish, make sure you include a pet friend to avoid running afoul of the Swiss legal system. You suppose you have to buy a seat for each of the goldfish? Good listeners are rare because good talkers are more often rewarded in society. Ah, but listening is a skill that can make us more valued as a friend and a colleague. This pod nugget is from Fast Company for May 6, 2022. The author suggests there are four key skills that can make you a better listener. The first skill is focus, providing your undivided attention to the speaker. Avoid the temptation to multitask, daydream, or frame your counter-argument while someone else is speaking. The second skill is empathy, the ability to see things from another person's perspective. Listening with empathy means making an effort to understand the point of view being expressed. The next skill is self-control. Avoid impulsive interruptions to make a counterpoint. Waiting for the other person to finish speaking is respectful and a courtesy you would like from others. Even if you are good at the first three skills, it's important that you convey to the other person that you've been listening. 
So inclusion of others' ideas is the final skill. When it's your turn to speak, refer to what others have said in a respectful way, even if you disagree. If this seems like a lot of work, there is a simpler formula for becoming a better listener. Shut up. Listen. Repeat. Oh, I can remember that. What? Lynette Ross is currently serving as a sabbatical pastor at a congregational church, but she took a long and circuitous route to get there. Born in the Mormon church, they parted ways when Lynette had other priorities. A sharp business person, she spent years in corporate America before turning to her spiritual needs. Now she shares what she's learned. I'm very curious, first of all. You were raised in the Mormon church. And um, so that is kind of your your religious foundation, correct? Well, you know, what's interesting is it's the religion of my family on both sides, but I wasn't actually raised in it. I was intentionally sent back to my aunt and uncles when I was 13 to have the missionary lessons. And so we got baptized and then we came back to Southern California. Of course, we didn't go to church. My parents didn't go to church and I couldn't drive. So at 16, I made the decision that I wanted to be active uh, in the Mormon church uh, because I could drive myself. But nobody else in my family went. So tell me about your mission trip. Uh, and you may want to explain a little bit about the, w- what the purpose of a mission trip is for a young Mormon. Well, you know, in the era that I went, uh, there were about 50,000 missionaries sent out at all times from the Mormon church. Uh, They believed that they were the only true church, and so, of course, they wanted to proselyze uh, folks. And typically, it was young men that went. They went at 19. They went for two years. Um, And I have to tell you, I went because I looked around and I thought, I can do that. You know, it doesn't have to be just the boys. I can go. And so girls had to be 21 because the hope was that we would get married before we went. I was very young and very naive and uh, out of control. And uh, so I went at 21 for two years, um, and I was actually called on a mission to Texas. Anyway, the reason that um, I ended up going to a place as unromantic as Texas is my parents were not thrilled about the idea of my going on a mission, especially my mother. And I knew that if I went to some foreign land thousands of miles away, she would not be right. So I actually requested a United States mission which is very unusual. You're knocking on doors. You're a stranger. Yes. Uh, So I bet you had some interesting experiences. Well, the most interesting one I had, because for the the most part, people were very gracious and very friendly. This is Texas after all, you know, you know, we know how to be friendly here. But one of the things we asked members of the church to do was give us the names of of relatives or neighbors, especially neighbors that might be interested in talking with us. So one time we got this name of this family that lived nearby. And so we assumed that that they wanted to talk to us. So we knock on the door and this gentleman answers the door and he was a member of the Church of Christ, which thinks that they're just as right as the Mormons think they're right. And he asked that we kneel down in the doorway and have God strike dead, whichever one of us was lying. <laughs> That's, that was probably at a, a tender age of 21 or 22, 
the most challenging moment I had. I declined the offer. Um, despite the fun of knocking on doors, you eventually left the Mormon Church. Well, we came to an understanding. Um, I always say that I had a love-hate relationship with the Mormon Church. I loved them, but they were not particularly fond of me. Uh. <laughs> and, and so I was actually uh, formally excommunicated from the Mormon Church because of my sexual orientation. Um, it was it was an awful experience. I'm not going to uh, try and make light of it. It was horrific, but um, I was very fortunate in that for whatever reason, I didn't blame God. I was always clear that it was the Mormon Church that did it to me, and so consequently, years later, I was able to go back to church because I didn't blame God. But there was a period of time when you are, as they say, unchurched. Yes, uh, I was not, I did not go to church for a long, long time, you know, uh, and actually what propelled me, interestingly enough, to go back to church was in 1989, I got uh, sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, that's very much a spiritual program, and and so I wanted uh, to be a part of uh, a faith community again. Well, I, I know you weren't idle during those years of spiritual search. In fact, you were employed in the world of business, weren't you? I spent about 35 years, I guess, uh, 30 years anyway, in corporate America. Uh, in a variety of things, I was in retail management. I spent time in outside sales with uh, several Fortune 500 companies. Then I spent a good amount of time, uh, I was uh, in um, home health, managed hospice, medical equipment, uh, you know, that kind of thing, and then spent another career in high-tech training in SAP and uh, and the like. Let me go back to your deciding to uh, go to divinity school. Uh, that That's a pretty uh, radical job change. The only three decisions I've made that weren't influenced by my family, community, the world. The first one was to go on a mission. I was like, no, I'm going to do this. The second one was to get sober. And the third one was to go to seminary. And I, how I can explain it is I had thought about going into the ministry years before, but I kept saying, God, I'm a woman and a lesbian. What did you have in mind? I mean, I had no context for it. I, I didn't, I had never seen a woman in the pulpit and I wasn't aware of a church that would have been accepting of my sexual orientation. So I just kind of put it on the back burner. I've always been drawn to spirituality. I've always been a church geek, even the years that I wasn't, I didn't go. Um, and I can't explain it. I literally felt that God had said, Lynette, I need you to go to seminary. Did you anticipate the cut and pay you were going to get when you entered the ministry? Starting my third year in seminary, I left corporate America. Uh, the company I worked for had been purchased. And so I was laid off. It was kind of the perfect timing I had been made, I'd been named as the pastor of the church. Uh, and yes, I took a 90% cut in pay overnight. Hmm. That was bold. Yeah. Yeah. And then I took social security early, which has cost me, but I've always had enough. Uh, you know, I know how to live small. Um, you know, I've been blessed and fortunate to do more traveling than I thought I'd ever do. 
but I love just being in my life. I love my friends, the people that I care about, my faith community. Uh, if I may pry, at what age were you, Reverend Ross? You know, I started seminary. This is, you know, and can I just share with you that it never occurred to me that it was a bad idea? Mm-hmm. It never occurred to me that I was too old. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I was 59 years old, almost 60 when I started seminary. And it was unheard of, really. I, I was by far the oldest person there. Um, but it never occurred to me that I couldn't do it. Uh, it just didn't. And, and so my goal was to be ordained before I applied for Medicare. <laughs> You've got to have goals in life. I, yes, I thought it was a worthy goal, and I made it by two years. I was <laughs> ordained when I was 63 years old. Uh, and, you know, I was only a, a local church pastor for six and a half years because I was a licensed minister before I was ordained. And so when I retired, quote, at 68, people said, well, you haven't been a minister that long. Why are you retiring? And I said, well, I get that, but I'm still 68 years old and I've still worked for 42 years. Uh, and um, and But I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Best decision I ever made. Wow. So how do you view your, let's call it status now, as um, a minister or as a participant in the church? Uh, how do you view yourself right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. Once you're ordained, you're kind of always viewed as a pastor. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think. <laughs> you know, that you're going to be um, seen as a minister and you're going to be treated as a minister for the, a, a large part. So on the one hand, I'm retired, but on the other hand, um, uh, I'm still, you know, seen uh, because, you know, I'm right now at uh, the church I'm where I'm at. I'm the sabbatical minister. And so that's how I'm viewed. And I was a minister as a, when I was a member there. And that was how I was viewed. So I'm OK with that to be seen and treated as a minister uh, because you never really t- retire. I still do weddings. I still officiate funerals. Um, I still get asked to preach. When I first retired, I thought I needed to have all these grand plans of writing books and, you know, doing blogs or whatever, you know. Um, But then I thought, nah, I don't want to do that. So what I love doing best and what, you know, I've loved being the sabbatical minister. I love First Congregational. And so I know them. And so I feel very uh, welcome there. I feel at home there. But aside from that, what I love best is uh, mentoring people, uh, you know, helping them along the way. And um, I do that uh, with um, folks in the ministry who are, who are trying to go through the ordination process or questioning things. I do that with people in 12-step recovery. And that's probably what brings me the greatest joy because I have, have such faith and confidence uh, in the young people in this country. Uh, you know, I want so much to see them succeed and uh, and change things. <laughs> and, and so it's wonderful to spend time with people that are young and um, and help them uh, become the kinds of adults that they want to be. So that that probably is what brings you the greatest pleasure. We try to interview people who have had an interesting career change late in life. Do you have any advice for somebody that's contemplating a change in their life? 
you know, I had some things going for me that were very advantageous, but I would say go for it. I mean, you know, we all have the same ending in life. Uh, and, and I had to, I don't know how to explain it, Paul, but it never occurred to me that I couldn't do it. You know, I was, I was fortunate to be surrounded by people who believed in me and, and who supported me. And, and they were there from day one through. It's the best decision I ever made. And so I certainly would never discourage somebody from going after a dream like that, ever. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.